Loving Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we come to your word that you would speak to us and that as we hear your word, we might be single-minded. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's on your mind? If there was one problem that you could fix with the click of a finger, what would that one problem be that's on your mind? Or maybe if there's an event that's coming up, what, what is it that if you were to lie awake at night and be thinking about that thing that's coming up, what would be on your mind? Now, I know there's a risk in asking you to think about that because it's possible that for the next little while you're just going to think about that and not what I'm saying up the front. But I'm prepared to take the risk because what I want to do tonight is I want to tell you that there is something that is far more important than whatever is on your mind. In today's passage, we read this, verse 31. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them, for this world as we know it will soon pass away. There is nothing that matters more than the return of Christ. There is no event that matters more. There's nothing that matters more. And that is true for people who believe in Jesus. And it's also for people who don't believe in Jesus. We said earlier on in the creed that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. And that means that every human who is alive or ever lived, whether they believed in Jesus or not, all will be judged. And so what we do in the lead up to that day changes everything. That is why no event matters more than the return of Christ. And everything else in comparison doesn't really matter. Do you believe this? Do you really believe that no event matters more than the return of Christ? Because if you did, that would change what's on your mind. Because the return of Christ changes what is on our mind. And not just what's on our mind, it would also change what we value. Because it would mean that we would think a lot less about those things that are not eternal. And I'm talking about the things that will be destroyed when the new creation comes. Pretty much anything you've made with your hands or bought with your money, all those things will fade away. Now, except relationships. Or except, though, if you've rejected Jesus. Because if you've rejected Jesus, then after judgment, you will experience a loneliness that will never go away. But for those of us who know Jesus, we will experience relationships that will be eternal. And so that's why we need to invest in relationships now. But you know, there is a special kind of relationship that is not eternal, and that is marriage. Jesus said in Luke 20, marriage is for people here on earth, but in the age to come, those worthy of being raised from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Marriage isn't eternal. Now, we still enjoy the fruit of the relationships on earth, but if you are married now, then in eternity you won't be. Now, why does that matter? 
Well, it matters quite a lot because up to this point in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he's been speaking a lot about marriage and singleness and sex and divorce. And we're now going to see all of those things in perspective. Because as we saw before, verse 31, I'll read it out again. This world as we know it will soon pass away. If we're going to think about marriage and singleness and all the other things related to it, we need to have this viewpoint, this perspective, this focus. Because ultimately we should fix our eyes on eternity. The end of last week's verse was 24. And it says, each of you, dear brothers and sisters, should remain as you were when God first called you. He's been talking about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage and all those things. And in the end, he basically wants them to be a little less focused on marriage. A few verses before, the week before we saw this, he says, but I wish everyone was single just as I am. Yet each person has a special gift from God of one kind or another. So I say to those who aren't married and to widows, it's better to stay unmarried, just as I am. In case you've missed it, as we've looked throughout the whole of chapter 7, Paul has a preference for singleness over marriage. And today he's really going to land that point very clearly. And today's passage begins with verse 25, which he says... Now, regarding your question about the young women who are not yet married. You know what it's like when you're listening to someone having a conversation with somebody else on the phone and you get to hear what they're saying, but you can't hear what the other person's saying and you're sort of trying to guess the whole conversation? It's a little bit like that when we're reading Paul's letter because he says, okay, now about that thing you said. And we'd like to really hear what it is that they've actually said, but it's a little unclear. Um, and in fact, it's a bit more complicated because, well, if you look at other verses, versions of the Bible, you'll see that it talks about virgins or people who are betrothed or engaged. We're not entirely sure what's being addressed here, but ultimately what we've got here in this translation pretty much nails it, and that it's about young people, young women, sorry, it's about young women who are not married. And to give them an answer... Paul says, I'm not going to give you a law, but I am going to give you some advice, some wisdom. And he says, verse 25b, I don't have a command from the Lord for them, but the Lord in his mercy has given me wisdom that can be trusted. And I'm going to share it with you, he says. What's his wisdom about these unmarried young women? Well, we see it in verse 26. He says, because of the present crisis, I think it's best to remain as you are. What's happening? Paul says that they're in a crisis. What kind of crisis are they in? Well, if you do a little bit of historical research, you'll find out that there was a big famine that swept through that part of the world in the 40s and 50s. It may well be that things were really, really hard, that that this famine was causing them to live in poverty and difficulty and a whole lot of other problems related to that. Uh, imagine if what it would be like if COVID-19 didn't really start to get fixed but kept going for another five or ten years and the financial stresses related to that and more lockdowns every single few months. And oh, That was kind of the 
situation they may well have been in. And so maybe that's what the present crisis is. Could also be the persecution that followers of Jesus were experiencing. In fact, the followers of God, including the Jews, they were experiencing enormous persecution. Maybe that's the present crisis as well. So there's a bit of poverty and famine thrown in with persecution and trials. Well, maybe on top of that, and even more than that, there's just the general reality that Jesus is returning soon. Maybe because things were so tough, they're thinking, surely Jesus won't be much longer. And so that is what he talks about as being the crisis. But whatever it is, they are sort of in a state of emergency. And that crisis would affect their choices in life. The crisis affects their choices in life. I wonder if it was a little bit like what it would have been like if we were living at the time of World War II. You don't think too much about marriage and singleness and so on if you know that there's a war around you. I've pointed this out before, but right here on the side of the building is a roll of honour from just six years of war. All those names there are all out of local residents of the Jamboree village. And a number of them have got little crosses next to them, those who have perished. Imagine if that many people left Jamboree to go and fight in a war. The whole of Australia, the whole of the world was thinking about a crisis. And people aren't thinking, ooh, I wonder what new clothes I'm going to buy. Or maybe it's time for us to go on a holiday. Or these kinds of things don't pop into your mind because a present crisis is happening. And that's the kind of headspace that Paul is in. And it's the kind of headspace he wants the Corinthians to be in if they're not already. And so with all of that in mind, he says in verse 27, if you've got a wife, don't seek to end the marriage. But if you don't have a wife, don't seek to get married. But if you do get married, it's not a sin. And if a young married gets young woman gets married, it's not a sin either. He's basically saying, look, at this time of crisis, just, just stay put, whatever you're doing, don't make any fast, rapid movements. Just, just stay where you're at. And so if you're married, just stay married. If you're not married, don't worry about marriage. But if you're young, you or a young woman decides to get married, that's okay. Paul's giving you wisdom. He's not saying it's sinful. And behind all of that is a principle. Verse 28b, he says, However, those who get married at this time will have troubles, and I'm trying to spare you those problems. He's saying that there in the 40s and 50s, if you go and get married, it, well, it'll cause you some troubles, and right now you don't want to have that kind of stress. You don't want to have those sorts of problems. At that time, marriage caused troubles and problems. Is it possible that that might still be the case? I think the answer is yes. I'd like to think there's no such thing as a difficult marriage and there's never problems in families and children and all this kind of stuff. But just three seconds in reality would show that that's not the case. Marriage can be complicated. And that's because marriage is such a serious investment in so many ways. 
I've got to say, it's true that it'd be so much easier to not be married. Especially if it's World War III and bombs are going off everywhere and our food is rationed and people are dying all over the place. Uh, the last thing you're thinking about is, who am I going to invite to my wedding? It's like, mate, we're just in survival mode here. The best thing that can happen in the time of crisis is to avoid the troubles and the problems of marriage so that we can just focus on that survival. That's the context in which Paul's writing and it's wise, isn't it? Because if the end of the world was, why, was, was, um, was nigh and we're kind of living like we're in a Hollywood apocalyptic movie, the last thing you're doing is, is thinking about getting married and, and, ooh, won't that be nice and, and how am I going to put it on Instagram? You're not thinking about those sorts of things. And that's why, of course, Paul's wisdom doesn't apply to now, does it, in March 2023? I mean, we're not at the end of the world, are we? We're not in end times, are we? We're not expecting to have an asteroid crash into the planet and bring the destruction of humanity, are we? Well, we don't live like that, but maybe we should. And I think that's the point that Paul's making to the Corinthians. Verse 29a, he says, But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters, the time that remains is very short. Whether it's got anything to do with the famine and the persecution or... I don't know, but certainly he's saying that human history is kind of in its last days. The time that remains is very short. Which means that whether or not we're in the happy-go-lucky days of 2018, remember back then? Well, maybe we're in the troubled times of 2023. That shouldn't really affect our views of the end times. See, Paul was sure that the time between then and the return of Jesus was very short. I don't know whether he thought it would be a few months or a year or two or a decade or two. I don't know. But for him, he saw it as being very, very short. From time to time, I've sat with people who have been diagnosed with terminal diseases. They've been told that if treatment is successful, they'll live for five to ten years. But if it's not successful, it might be five to ten months or five to ten weeks. Nothing gives a person focus like a terminal diagnosis. Suddenly plans for a year or two or maybe in ten years' time we might go and travel. No, you probably won't. It all is about the now. It's about the next few days and weeks and maybe months. Every day is a gift and life becomes short and focused. Imagine if we all lived like that. Imagine if we lived like Jesus was just about to return. Imagine if every Christian just acted like Jesus was returning before Christmas. This year, this Christmas. Imagine how that would change our Christian lives. Imagine how it would change our church life. If you knew that Jesus was returning in the next few months, I wonder what changes that would make to your life. What decisions would you make that you would change? 
From time to time, I've been around some Christians who really seem convinced that Jesus is just about to return. Sometimes they'll interpret world events and say, well, if I sort of join the dots, it seems that Jesus is returning on this particular day at this particular time and so on, and everything is focused on that particular moment. Now, the Bible actually says that that's not a wise thing to do. We don't know, and there's always going to be things like that that are popping up. But I've got to say, it is very refreshing to be around Christian brothers and sisters who actually live with an urgency that say Jesus could come back any day. Because I spend too much time around Christians who think, well, chances are I'll die old. What if life would be like for you if we genuinely took that attitude? What would it impact us like when it comes to singleness and marriage? Well, in verse 29b, he says, Paul, So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. That sounds reasonable and fair. Uh, the literal translation actually says, let those who have wives live as though they had none. That's a little bit more hard-hitting, but the point is still the same. The issue is that we need to make sure that the marriages in our church are not our primary focus. Now, being married is not a bad thing at all, but in our last days of life, which is what we're living now, We've got to make sure that our marriages are not the main focus. Now, that was true for, true for them 2,000 years ago. How much more should it be the case for us today? The return of Christ is closer than ever before. And so we've got to make sure we don't idolise our marriages. Marriage is temporary after all. It's all going to fade away. The, the, it's a model for us all of, of, of the marriage of Christ to the church, which is a beautiful way of thinking things, but it's, it's only temporary. A little bit like how the temple was wonderful and amazing and taught amazing things, but it's been destroyed. So are our earthly marriages. Now, this doesn't mean that we neglect our marriages, but it does mean we mustn't live like marriages are more important than God. And it might mean that we need to make some costly decisions to honour God. When our Dublin missionary Cameron Jones was studying at Theological College in the UK, he was required to live in singles accommodation on his own, even though he was married at the time. Now, I have no doubt that that was costly for their marriage, but for the sake of the gospel, Cameron and Alex chose to live apart so that he could follow the pathway to ordination in that particular diocese. A mate of mine, Tim Booker, was serving as a chaplain with the Australian Army around the time of the Iraq War. He spent nine months of one year away from his family, and he had got kids the same age as me, and that was nearly 20 years ago. And he would go away and he'd be in secret places in dangerous parts of the world. He has been shot at in all sorts of exotic places. If I have no doubt that it was costly for their marriage, but for the sake of the gospel, Tim and Anna chose to live apart so that Tim could be fully embedded with the troops. If their marriage was number one, if Cameron and Alex's marriage was number one, they wouldn't have done it. 
but they are wonderful models of people who have Jesus as number one. And they sacrificed living together with a normal life so that they could proclaim Christ in these last days. Marriage is not number one, but following Jesus is. And so we've got to be very careful not to create idols out of our marriages. And if you're not yet married, don't presume that it's just the default normal thing to get married. In fact, may be that God gifts you with the kind of contentment that frees you up to be a gospel worker who's not tied down with a marriage. And I think in particular of our sister Jo in the Middle East who has remained single and has given herself so many extra opportunities to focus on ministry and to move around and to learn languages and to put her household of one under such extreme pressure that would have been almost impossible if it was a household of many. See, marriage is good, but it's not best. And so we've got to make sure we see marriage the way that God sees it. But it's not just marriage that needs to be kept in that kind of perspective in these last days. Verse 30. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. In other words, we need to look to Jesus and the life of the world to come, not to be focused on our grief or our joy or our stuff. These are all temporary things. We've got to look to the life that is to come and not be transfixed on the things of now. And the reason is this, verse 31. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached to them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. That will have significant impact on what we do with the stuff we've got. But also with our relationships. And this is where we come back to the discussion we started with. See, marriages require attention. Marriages require an investment. And so if you really want to give more attention to living for the life that is to come, then being single is best. Because if you want to be more single-minded, it's good to be single. And so Paul said to the people in Corinth, verse 32, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. Now, if we're not careful, we will actually see Paul presenting a kind of an either-or situation. Either you're unmarried and devoted to the Lord, or you're married and not devoted to the Lord at all. Now, it's not like that, right? It doesn't have to be an either-or but at the same time, let's not just take all of the, the heat out of what we're reading here, what, what the Lord is telling us tonight. We don't want to take the, the, the significance out of this. He's saying if you want to be more single-minded for God, it's better to be single. He goes on to say, verse 34, that that married man's interests are divided. In the same way... A woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and 
holy in body and spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't it? If you want to be more single-minded for God, it's better to be single. But it's not a command from Paul. It's not a law. It's a suggestion. A suggestion for our own good. Have a listen to how he puts it. Verse 35. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. I love this verse. And as I looked at it this week, I, I, I think I saw it in a, in a totally fresh light because I love his pastoral heart in this. He says this fairly intense thing, but he encourages them without guilting them. You know, it's so easy when whether you're a, a youth leader or a, or a growth group leader or, or, or just a, a committed Christian who talks to other Christians about life. You know, it's really easy for all of us to create rules and regulations to get rid of any ambiguity in life. Just tell me what's right and wrong. Because then when you tell me what I need to do that is right, then when I do it, I'll feel good. And when I do what I've done that is not according to your law, I'll feel bad. That, friends, is the opposite of the grace-filled life. Because when we know the grace of God, when we know the the free, loving gift of true fellowship with our Creator as, as forgiven people... As saved people, when we live that, there is no room for legalism. And that is how Paul is speaking here. And it's beautiful. It's not kind of like, let's just get around here, each, here, around to each other and just nail each other. Or, or let's just sort of beat each other up to try and get ourselves tough like this. He's not saying that kind of thing. He's lovingly, gently encouraging them to do what he thinks is best for them but only if they can manage it. Which leads to a further concession, verses 36 to 38. He says, But if a man thinks that he's treating his fiancée improperly and will inevitably give in to his passion, let him marry her as he wishes. It's not a sin. But if he's decided firmly not to marry and there's no urgency and he can control his passion, he does well not to marry. So the person who marries his fiancée does well. And the person who doesn't marry does it even better. What's all that talking about? Well, I could speak for quite some time about it. There's lots of discussion about it. But the point of this is life is short. So getting married is good. And not getting married is maybe even better. But at the end of the day, both are good. And it's okay. But in all of this, there's also a reminder that marriage is for life, bearing in mind all the other things we looked at before about divorce, separation and remarriage. And he says this, verse 39, A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. If her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but only if he loves the Lord. Basically, death does part. Till death us do part, when death happens, the marriage is over completely and there's freedom to remarry. 
So who should the wife, or now widow, marry? Someone who loves the Lord. It's a pretty clear word there. We should marry people who love the Lord. I mean, literally it says, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. I don't think it's a command. But I think it's very clear that this is really wise to do this. And it really is unwise not to do it. Not to mention the fact that there's all these difficulties that the rest of this chapter is about addressing because of this problem. If you want to hear more about marrying non-Christians, going out with non-Christians and so on, have a listen to last week's talk. I spent about five, ten minutes on it. I'm not going to go over it again. But I think there is wisdom here. But the final verse of the chapter Paul basically just repeats what he's saying before. He says, but in my opinion, I think it'd be better for her to stay single. And I think I'm giving you counsel from God's spirit when I say this. He says to the widowed woman, look, when you're a widow, you're now free to marry someone else. But to be perfectly honest, don't. Just stay single. I reckon it's better. But it's up to you. It's okay. In all of this, can you see that Paul does not say that marriage is bad or wrong. He just simply says that, to be honest, singleness is better. And if you're really wanting to be single-minded with God, pursue singleness. But we've got to see that marriage is seen as being really positive throughout the Bible. And in fact, it's how God made us with natural desires. And I think that's evidence that men and women are naturally to be married and to have children. And there are all sorts of times in the Bible where God, through his apostles, speaks to husbands and wives and to children. That marriage is normal and good. Song of Songs is a whole book about the chemistry of marriage and, and, and attraction and so forth. But with all of that in mind, we're going to make sure we don't let the word of God from tonight, from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, lose its punch, lose its sort of corrosive kind of vitriolic kind of whoa that just doesn't sit so comfortably with us there's something a bit different there we've got to make sure it is something we hold on to and don't let it go away from us the message is very clear life is short jesus is returning soon and it's got to affect every decision we make and so if you're not married you've got a choice you may choose to say, I'm going to stay unmarried. I'm going to stay unmarried because I want to devote myself more to serving Christ than those here who are married. You've got a choice to be more single-minded than those who are married. And the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. He says, that's the better choice. And especially the better choice because we're living in the last days. And that means, friends, for all of us, that if we are going to be people who listened obediently to the word of God, we need to share this value. We need to value the single people in our church. If you are single, we as a church need to value you more and more. And we're sorry for when we haven't. Please help us to value you more. Because you have a gift and we honour you and honour God 
for that gift. And so we, friends, must honour single people and their commitment. We've talked a lot about being intergenerational here, all ages, all stages. What about all statuses as well? Are you old? Are you young? Have you got kids or not? Are you single? Are you married? All ages, stages and statuses. We value you, we love you and we want you to feel equally a part of what we do here. And we need to work harder to include singles because it shows we really believe what the Bible says about the value of singleness. And we believe this because we really believe we're living in the last days. Do you really think that Jesus is coming soon? Do you really think that Jesus might come back before Christmas? Or before Easter? Or before the new chairs arrive? (laughs) Friends, we need to be undivided, single-minded.